drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hey, hello, and welcome. This is very definitely Series 4, not Series 3 as you might think, of Drive-by Cinema. <laughs> episode 5. Episode 5. Do you know why it's easy? Because those are both numbers you can count on one hand. Yeah. Oh, well, we've gone back in time to yeah. Paul's early counting days. This is my co-host, Paul. That's my co-host, Richard. Welcome, one and all. He's not educationally challenged, although that's what we might think. Because, Paul, last week... It's just straight in there with the insults. Just get it over, Richard. Come on, hit me. Last week, keen-eared listeners will have noticed that it did sound like you were broadcasting oh. from a telephone booth. No, I was just trying to evoke that Saturday afternoon football results vibe. Where the drunken reporter just dials in the report, you know, phones from it in from, telephone a, from a telephone box instead of typing it up. I've had a go about you about this already, and I'm sorry. The thing is, here's a... You're well aware that it was an accident, well, a, a, a tragedy of errors, aren't you? And it's also, it's not like I haven't done the same thing. It's easily done, Gee. but here's the thing. For reasons I can't adequately explain, Paul, last week's episode... It was the most popular one we've ever done. Not quite, but it was certainly more popular than Oppenheimer, for instance, which was our hitherto most recent, like, hit. Fuck me. So, are you saying Oppenheimer was a popular episode for us? Well, of course it was, because it was brand new in the cinema. Brilliant! We're on the up and up, we'll get a sponsorship soon. But then lots of people tuned in to Upgrade and heard you broadcasting from a toilet with a bucket (laughs) on your head. (laughs) Look, I mean, it, I was like, well, I don't know if people want to know the details. It, it was that kind of set of consequences where you make one error and it, it, it cannonballs into a series of series of further errors. Which it's sorry. very inside baseball and I'm sure no one cares. But yeah. I thought we were getting better at better at doing like quality. I, I, I turn my phone off these days so we don't often get interruptions. You do have a squeaky chair. The one thing about using a crap microphone, Paul, is that no one could hear your chair. <laughs> uh, oh. Look, I went down to the garage and I got my other chair out, right? Which is oh. plasticky. Ah, and, okay. Oh, let me, you know, modern, mid-century modern. Yeah? Right. Uh, okay. I sat on that for, for several of Series 3, but it turned out to, to be just as squeaky. I think it's more to do with my burgeoning weight than anything else, Richard, rather than the chairs. Really? Is that, is that right? Generally, yes. If you don't believe me, you can debunk it at the next QED conference, Richard, which is coming soon, isn't it? Yeah. End of September, 23rd, 24th. I think there are still tickets left. Hop along if you are sceptically inclined. QEDcon.org. And if, like me, you're not you're a virtual person, you don't live in the real world, you can actually go there online these days. Is that right, Richard? How did you know that? Yeah, for the first time we're selling streaming tickets. Baseballs, well done. Right, so corrections apart from the un- incorrectable sound quality of my of my feed, Richard, what corrections do we have from last week? As I alluded to, I seem to have put the last two episodes up as season three episodes rather than season four episodes. I don't know what that does to the whole podcasting indexing system. <laughs> I will correct it. I've made a mistake. I said fucking couple case. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oof. Not Easily done. So ended my project manager career. <laughs> <laughs> so it is season four. And it is. We yeah, really ought to have marked... I don't know why we didn't mark the start of our season four by doing a press conference at the Four Seasons Landscape and Gardening. <laughs> I was thinking about that the other day. It's a monumental moment in world history, isn't it? You mean, geopolitics. <laughs> I mean, I have hung around in, lo- in five-star lobbies, but that was when I was homeless and needed to make some money. <laughs> no, no. What we, what we, yes, I mean, if, it would be great if we could do that. Are, are you thinking of an actual Four Seasons Hotel? Or are you, yeah. I'm talking about Rudy Giuliani's press conference. I've got no idea what you're talking about, Richard. Hold the phone. Okay, what one? Uh, who is Rudy Giuliani? What is that? Okay. I don't, maybe you don't follow American politics. I don't, no, no. I apologise to between 10 and 20% of our audience. I'm sorry that Paul's so ignorant. So, as you may recall, (laughs) as you may recall, Trump lost the last presidential election. I know. Look, okay. Right. I'm I'm kind of angered American friends when I said, oh, it's great. This is all great entertainment value. Oh, you angered them, yeah. Yeah, because I said it's it's comedic, isn't it? And they're like, no, it's not comedic. 
not funny at all. You belittled, you belittled <laughs> their entire... No, I mean, they the didn't like Trump at all. In the world. Right, they didn't okay. like Trump, but they didn't find it funny at all, you see. So. For them, it's life or death is serious stuff. Sure. So, after... Well, I didn't election. know it was going to become so serious, did I? Uh, after the election, as you know, apart from Trump inciting insurrection and a bunch of other despicable acts, he had a legal team that set about trying to overturn the results of the election on the basis of completely unproven cases of voter fraud. Right. Now, one of his legal team, one of his legal heroes, as it were, was the ex-mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani, who oh. is a bona fide legal operator supposedly, but was a complete Trump MAGA kind of lunatic. And an amazing thing happened, which I'm astonished you don't know about, which was that he called a press conference. Now, here's what I assume happened in the Rudy Giuliani camp, as it were. Rudy Giuliani goes to one of the interns and he goes, hey, you, book a press conference at the Four Seasons. Okay. Right. Now you're brand new on the job, Paul. Yeah. And you're not quite sure what the Four Seasons is. So you, you go. So you Foursquare it or Google it or something like that. Yeah. And what do you happen to find? Well, you happen to find a company called Four Seasons Landscape and Gardening. Yeah. Somewhere in the <laughs> suburbs of New York. And you phone them up, and they go, oh, "That's a strange request. You never had that before, but sure, yeah, why not?" And so, Rudy Giuliani, ex-President Trump's legal representative, or one of them, shows up with all of the world's press at this <laughs> tiny little landscaping and gardening, like, outlet supplier, you know, on a row of kind of industrial estates. <laughs> and Giuliani's got a lectern set up in the car park. <laughs> And he gives a press conference there as if that was a perfectly normal thing to do. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, look it up on YouTube, you'll be astounded. Well, brave anyway. You know, there is that to be said. <laughs> Can you imagine Giuliani is just bundled into an Uber thinking he's going to the Four Seasons Hotel? Well, also, it implies that he didn't recognise it, was the, it wasn't the Four Seasons he was thinking of, yeah? Well, I'm guessing... But by the time he realised... You could cancel it. You know, if you didn't realise, you could say, oh, I've got a cold, I'm not going to get out of the limousine. And then you could just cancel, couldn't you, and rearrange the next day kind of thing. Sure. That's what a smart person would do, yes. Right. But we watched Upgrade last week, is that right? We did, yes. So I presume we made absolutely no errors that need to be corrected there, Richard. Is that right? I think it was all good, Paul. Let's... Wow. Let us play the music for today's for episode. movie. This week's movie, Paul, which is, of course, oh, uh, 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 the host, the host it is the host from two thousand. So seven, but I think it's touched two thousand six when it first came out in Korea. By Korean director, the famous one, <laughs> Bong Joon Ho. <laughs> Thank you. Now, this is the guy who did Snowpiercer, which we have seen, and Parasite. Why is the Korean movie industry? doing so well recently what's the big what's the big deal there I was I was kind of I was kind of ruminating on this like having watched this thinking well one it's a really good a really good movie kind of thing and two just thinking about why are Korean movies just generally so well received at home and abroad I think it has to do with the fact that they don't conform to Hollywood conventions really which are very tired yes that's true, but it can't be the only reason, right? Because but think about think about how restrictive Hollywood conventions were until about nineteen sixty. About nineteen sixty two, was it? No gun could be raised. That's why people always shot from the hip. No bad things could be said about the USA or about other countries either. But what else was there? Hang uh, on, hang on. Rewind. No criminal could ever be no seen. No gun could be raised. No gun could ever be raised and pointed at. Well, that was. At firing that was a, height. a rule. That's a rule. That's why people always used to sort of subtly, re- you know, remove them from a pocket and sort of twist their wrist at, at hip height and, and shoot from the hip. It was to avoid egregious gun onslaughts. Okay. I had no idea. Yeah, and also no, no, no bad guy, no buddy could be seen to come out on top at the end. Either they would be caught by the police, or they had to. The overwhelming guilt of it all meant they had to take their own life before the police caught them. 
you could decry Hollywood conventions, but they were straight-jacketed onto an unwilling industry, yeah? And when, when we say it's such a Hollywood ending now, it's not necessarily that Hollywood wants to continue doing that. It's just, it's got locked in that rhythm where it can't quite get out of these very cliched, tropist kind of approaches to filmmaking. So essentially, I think... Fresh, uh, breath of fresh air, fresh of breath air. Breath of fresh air is the fact that Korean movies are not afraid, afraid to be extremely tragic and are not afraid to be commie tragic like this one. Breath of fresh air. Yes, yeah. but I mean, you, one thing you don't want to do, I've heard, is try and put your head above the parakeet, do you? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why it is. You <laughs> don't. Are so dangerous. No, yeah. I mean, you, you, whatever might come flying at you, I don't know. Like, High-speed sunflower seeds or something. I don't know. So here's another point, then. South Korea, is it so obsessed with movie-making because of the American influence in South Korea? I don't know. How far is American influence in South Korea apart from they gave them a car industry and taught them how to play baseball? I don't know if it is that pervasive. I mean, certainly there's there's a strong anti-American vein running through this whole movie, isn't there? Well, I was going to say that, but I thought the Americans were generally fondly regarded in South Korea. I th- this movie is perceived as being, I don't think it is anti-American to that extent, but it's perceived as being anti-American to such an extent that uh, high praise was lavished upon it by the North Korean government. Really? Yes. Wow. Yes. Have you lived in South Korea at all? I have for two and a bit years. So I think it's essentially familiarity breeds contempt. I don't right. think there's, uh, there's certainly some antagonism in Japan strong antagonism towards the American presence. But I don't think there is one because it's never really been an occupying presence in Korea. I don't think there's that strength of anti-American sentiment that you get sometimes like in France these days. And in the beginning, you begin to get in the UK, you know. We have a Democratic Party US at the moment, but still people are still very much like, they perceive America to be a certain sort of hegemonic kind of willpower, don't they? And I, I'm not sure Biden is that hawkish. In sure, terms. yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a general um, kind of... A general, it's, become a, it's almost become a blind cliché, hasn't it? In, in the sense that it doesn't necessarily conform to the actions and the realities of various US presidents, for example, Obama and Biden. It's two examples. But no, I mean, there is, obviously, you know, Fanatic Breeze Contempt, you know, it's, it's... What's the Douglas Adams quote? It's difficult for a, a knight to remember how tired the horse was, but the horse can always remember how how tired he was when the night sat on him kind of thing. I don't know the exact quote. But sure, if you've got essentially what is a culturally occupying force, of course there's going to be resentment. But no, I don't think it's a strong resentment. And really, although there was quite a lot of anti-American sentiment and implied anti-American sentiment here, it's not It's not vitriolic, is it? I have another saying, which is, if all the people are starving and you're giving them bread, don't fool yourself into thinking that you're a good cook. That's that's a, that's a very good point. Absolutely. Although you may be a good cook. Coincidentally, that... Also, don't fool yourself that they're grateful. Oh. Okay. They should be more grateful, shouldn't they? If you're giving them... And, and don't bread. fool yourself that they're not going to... After having taken the bread, they're not going to rip you to pieces and eat you too. For that. Oh. Right, okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I've got the wrong way. <laughs> right, okay. So, no, you're right. There is an anti-American sentiment here, but there's lots of black humour and a kind of tragedy at the same time. Genre mixing, I guess we'd call it. I think that's what he does well. I think all of them do that well because they don't follow the conventions of Hollywood. Film opens. Interior. Mortuary. Is that a mortuary or a morgue? I don't know. The place where you cut up bodies, anyway, and find out why. Don't know the difference, but go on, continue. Correct. Neither do I. Older pathologist. Is that what you call them? Pathologist? I don't know. Or a creepy dead doctor guy. Yeah, pathologist. Uh, Or could be a coroner. But pathologist. He is an American guy. Yeah. And he's telling his number two to pour away all the jars of formaldehyde, and there are many. Somewhat officiously, and somewhat, you might say, brusquely. Yeah. Well, he says it's because they're dusty. They've got dust on the exterior of the bottle. And as a consequence, he bids his number two... To throw away the contents. Pour it all down the sink. It's just formaldehyde, isn't it? Well, that's what they say. He says, but we can't do that because it'll end up in the Han River. But uh-huh. the boss wants none of it, does he? He says, pour it away. And so, extracts it on. What do they call that? That, that, gas, that gas thing where you do your gas experiments? 
the hood, isn't it? The I know it's called the hood, hood, but the it's not the extractor fan. It's like the do it in. Make sure you do this experiment in a <laughs> in a. I know what you mean. Yeah, a thingy. A thingy. No, a thingy cabinet. Uh, <laughs> Had to do such a lot of that organic chemistry stuff, Ugh. like benzene and horrible. Do you do you remember any of that? I remember making aspirin. I remember making aspirin. Was that at college or yes. school? That was the university. Yeah. yeah. Whoa! You made aspirin. And I know that at school we did a hell of a lot of titrations. In fact, I went and did a titration competition in the city centre. <laughs> With. You did a titration competition? Yeah. Were you we, part we of some got, chemistry club or something? I, I, not a club. I don't know how I got involved, but there was three of us. And we all wound up in in MMU or UMIST or something doing Whoa. titration against loads of other schools. Yeah. Wow. I remember the chemistry at sixth form. One, our chemistry teacher said, do you want to buy some of my knockoff perfumes? It's what I make in what? the lab. <laughs> When I'm, I'm supposed to be supervising you lot because uh, he was also very free from like okay here's what we're doing this in this titration today it wasn't always a titration and then he disappeared for an hour and then towards the end of the sixth form he said can I let you know a secret lads and lasses he said uh, you know what I've let you off let you do your own devices for an hour you really enjoyed it and you've mostly got me your work well done he said I've been using that time to you know knock off some perfumes and he said now you know what esters are you can help me make them instead of doing your chemistry lab experiments if you want to Oh, Esther's. Mm, but no. So for the last for the last three weeks before exams, we just spent our lab time making Esther's so you could make some cheap perfumes. But I mean, they would be pretty cheap, wouldn't they? <laughs> wow, then. Exterior. Two fishermen are wading in the river, presumably the Han River. Sometime after this formaldehyde has been dumped, yeah? Did you live in Seoul? I did. I also went to Gangnam. And I also went to look at the other side of Gangnam, which is the poor side. Uh, but mostly, I enjoyed riding the Seoul metro system, which is just fabulous. Very big river, lots of bridges. Two fishermen are wading in the river. One of them scoops up a creature in his mug, and he has a look. He says it's mutated to his mate, I think. Yeah, and it tries 10 to legs or 11 legs or something. So he chucks it away, and it swims off. And we then see, cut now to a shot on a bridge, where a guy who is seemingly suicidal and he's hanging off the bridge. This guy is looking down and he sees something huge and dark in the river. And he jumps. We don't know what happens to him. The titles roll. And now we see a little kid trying to nick sweets from a kiosk, a a sort of shop kiosk thing. Not before his bit older brother pulls him off and grabs him before he can nick stuff. He's doing this because the proprietor of the shop is dozing, well, sleeping quite soundly, isn't he? <laughs> this is our main man. I don't know if you call him our protagonist or anti-hero, a comic hero. This is Pak Gangdu. Gangdu, yeah. This guy, the actor, was in a couple of other things that we've seen. No he was way. also He was also the dad in Parasite, right? Whoa. I think he was also in Snowpiercer as well, but I'm not certain about that. Wow. So, he's got blonde hair, which apparently was the director's way of signifying that this guy's kind of a lazy, a lazy bum. <laughs> which, you know, I feel somewhat hectored by, what can I say? There are no gingers in this film, Paul, so you're safe. <laughs> Listen, neither of us are ginger. We're neither blonde nor ginger, are we? We're both great. Not anymore. I, mean, I never was ginger, just to correct you on a point there, Richard. <laughs> dirty, I was dirty blonde. <laughs> so, Strawberry blonde. Strawberry blonde. The guy who seems to be his boss, but it's actually his father, I think, tells him to go and roast three squid for guys. Table apparently four. They, ser- yeah. they, they serve people, don't they? They've got like picnic rugs laid out. And no, they- I think they lay the mats out. They lay the picnic mats out with numbers and people come and sit on them to order. Right. Right. Okay. But they have these dried squid. Look horrible to me. You had it? Yeah. yeah. Now, apparently they've yeah. got 10 legs or 11 legs. Squid have ten legs, yeah, famously so, yeah. I didn't know that's why, that. That's why they're called tentacles, isn't it? Ah, it's a good way to remember. So <laughs> the squid have ten legs, okay. Except for octopuses. So the the store keeper, Gangdu, the, the son of the grandfather, 
it's getting complicated now because we're about to introduce all the people. But he kind of wakes himself up and as he's cooking it badly, he decides to eat one of the legs of the squid he's cooking. I mean, presumably they're dried already or you don't need to cook them, I don't know. Cause That's right, you just heat it up, yeah. Shoving them to a toaster. Now his daughter arrives from parents' day at school. Obviously, Gangdu couldn't go to it. Apparently, he sent her uncle, his brother, as they're having their interchange, father and daughter, they see reports, or there are reports on the TV of a dead guy being pulled out of the river. Mm -hmm. And then they go and turn on the archery on TV because her auntie... Nanju, yeah, Nanju. Apparently is like a a national standard archer. Mm -hmm. She's competing in this televised competition. Yeah. But she chokes, doesn't she? She does. He, she, he, she does, yeah. Okay, so this is interesting. We've got three siblings. Okay. We've got Gangdu, who is just a layabout and a bit of a wastrel. We've got Namju, the daughter, or the sister, sorry, who's an Olympic, if you like, overachiever. And then we've got Nam Il, the uncle, who is an ex. We haven't seen him yet. But he's, we know he, he's an ex. He's a graduate. He's a graduate. Uh, what we've got, he's an ex protester, isn't he? He fought for democracy and now can't get a job, presumably because he's blacklisted by the big companies in Korea because of his political activities, kind of thing. So they're three very different children. But I think the director here is like, you know, why is he refreshing? Is that class issues are always, I think, an issue, are always presented to the four of his of his movies but he's never oh, yeah. really sympathetic to anybody is he like here essentially we're either dealing with the lumpen proletariat or if you like the lower ends or the displaced proletariat or if you like the underclass really this whole family if you like and he's, he's kind of commented about how debilitating that class lower class culture is is towards itself how, how self-defeating it is because I mean she's she panics really because She's come from this pressured, slightly dysfunctional family environment, isn't it? Really, I think is what he's trying to say. Is that the three children dysfunctional because they've grown up poor, basically. And there's nothing to do about it. Bung Joon-ho was warned off by his peers about doing a monster movie. Uh-huh. They imagined he'd be wasting his talent to do a monster movie. Particularly, you know, to do what, what I presume they imagined, maybe everyone imagined, would be a formulaic Hollywood <laughs> or even Japanese Kind of, yeah. kind of thing. His opinion was, and he did want to tackle a class-related issue, as he did in Snowpiercer, as he does in Parasite. You know, it is a theme. You're quite right. It's a direct trademark, isn't it? He said that he wanted to make sure that the heroes of this film were not the scientists or a soldier, you know, or a, an upstanding hero going to beat the monster. He wanted ordinary people. Flawed people. To be front yeah. And and that's, that's what we've got. You know, he's depicting them, isn't he? He's flawed. He's not blaming them, but he's saying their circumstances cripple them, you know. I think Marx would have come out the same thing. He would have said the lumpen proletariat, you know, they're not heroic yet. They've got some way to go before they become heroic worker class kind of thing. His daughter, who's called Hyungso, Hyungso, I think? Yes, Hyungso. When she arrives and starts watching the archery, her dad gives her a beer. <laughs> I mean, she must be, what, 15, 14, 15? No if more. that, yeah. Yeah. Very 12 uh, or 30, yeah. So, you know, I, I guess, is that symbolism of, like, a broken home, a, a, a parent who doesn't give a shit? Nobody's getting away scot-free, are they? You know, he's kind of saying, like, yeah, these people, they're not to blame for the circumstance, but they are kind of making it a bit worse themselves, kind of thing, you know. He's, he's putting nobody under a halo, is he? Which is refreshing because I think, like, with Spielberg here, if we had these poor people in a desperate situation, they could do no wrong, could they? It would it would be very saccharine. It would be kind of ha- hagiographic or something. Is that the right yes, word? Yes, that would be the right word if anyone had meant. It would be just... <laughs> it would be turned up a little bit too schmaltzy, wouldn't it, you see? And he doesn't do that, you know? It's kind of warts and all, which is very refreshing. Gangdu is having to deal with complaints from a customer because he ate one of the squid's legs. <laughs> Apparently they count them and they're the best bit. But as he goes over to them, all of the customers start watching a thing hanging underneath the bridge. The black Oh, yes. It's a shape, a sinuous droplet kind of, but big, that suddenly drops into the water. The, the crowd move to the water to get a better look and he chucks a beer can at the water, doesn't he? And a tentacle <laughs> under the water reaches out and grabs it. 
Yeah. And then the rest of the crowd start chucking stuff at this, what we now know is the monster, yeah. Uh, amazingly, his, his clients haven't taken the squid or the, or the apologetic beer he's been delivering to them. Everybody's just transfixed by this monster, and you know that it's going to come out of the water and attack everybody, as it does. Well, here's another Hollywood trope that we break here, because rather than keeping the monster hidden for two-thirds of the movie with the occasional glimpse and then revealing it in the last bit. Out after 12 minutes, which I thought was really good value. We suddenly see this legged creature running along the riverside, the dock side or whatever you call it. The crowd scattering in every which direction in front of it. Except for the one woman who's got headphones on. Modern kind of morality <laughs> tale here. So she she fails to hear it, doesn't she? So she gets eaten or jumped. Lots of quite dark laughs here, but... People that shouldn't get eaten get eaten, you know. Breaks all kind of Hollywood tropes, doesn't it? You know, children get smashed into either portaloos or, or, or containers, vessels, and, you know, get gobbled up and blood squirts out from the from the vessels kind of stuff. And that, no, it's, James it's, he's quite heroic, isn't he? He is really heroic, yeah. But also a fuck all with these it. People get, all these people get gets, uh, chased into, like, a prefab or temporary or container unit, and the creature goes in there with them, but they can't get out the other side because it's padlocked or bolted or something. Mm-hmm. And Gangji sees this. He also sees this American guy who's, we learn later, is an American serviceman, obviously serving in the, one of the bases. And they both run over to this thing and they break the lock so they can let the people out inside. I think the, the Yank gets pounced on by the monster as it bursts out. And because he chucks a paving stone at it as it jumps out. That's right. And Gangju tries to help him. He picks up a sign with a big concrete base on the bottom of it. And he swings it at it, doesn't he? Yeah, and hits <laughs> it on its tail so that it might let the American soldier go. Yeah, he's, he's very, very, very brave, but he just can't help fucking up everything he does, you know. Towards the end of this incredible chase scene, he realises that his daughter's been swept up and is in danger. Is in danger. And uh, he rushes to try and help her. And just at the moment he's about to rescue her, he kind of loses focus and grabs the hand of the wrong girl. Is that right, yeah? Another little girl, another schoolgirl is yeah. like also in the crowd. And he turns around and sees the monster with his daughter grabbed in its tail. That's right. Jumping into the water and swimming away. So it's abducted her, effectively. And the army are arriving now. The area is being evacuated. There's yellow tape going up everywhere. And we cut to uh, what I thought was a refugee point or a sports hall or something. But I also saw it described as like a funeral house or something. Whoa. Don't know about that. It seemed just to be like a a stadium or indoor sports I think it was a sports hall, yeah. A community centre. But there's certainly a a load of pictures up, aren't there? That's right. There's a shrine to the dead, yeah. The archer girl, Numju, is it? Mm-hmm. Namju, she turned up. She's got her bronze medal that she's just won, <laughs> but obviously that's not on the family's mind. They're all in hysterics. In fact, there's some very performative grief <laughs> that occurs at this moment, isn't there? So at this point, we get the first kind of hint of some of the director's kind of perspectives here. Is that the officials are presenting this monster, which we know to be a straightforward monster, as a, the carrier of a deadly unknown virus. And they're kind of covering for the fact that, you know, they don't want media shocking revelations that there's a man-eating monster inhabiting the Ham River kind of thing. And this is 2008, so it's long before COVID. Long before course, COVID. Long before I mean, swine flu as well, I think. But they've had SARS and stuff, haven't they? In they the, have had SARS, yeah. Which they referenced in briefly. Region, in the region. Yeah. Because you might argue that the government promulgating a fake virus story might play in the hands of modern anti-vax Lunatics. Sure, but that's after we've had antivirus lunatics, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't be blamed for the... The context is different, isn't it, really? Completely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, fair observation, yeah. I was thinking, like, so many of the things that he's saying, given what fake news that's happened over the past five years, the realignment of Russia, the influence of Russia on Western media, and the whole... And burning down 5G phone masks and all this kind of stuff that's happening. Within that context, yeah. Questioning CNN doesn't mean the same thing anymore, does it, really? That's not to say that CNN doesn't clearly have controlling and truth-defining narratives. It does. But I don't think they're the critical issue anymore, are they? 
We have established, Paul, that you're not really a follower of American politics. So perhaps I can ask you this question fairly and get a fair answer from you. I wonder, how many indictments do you think is permissible for someone who may be standing for high office? Dare I say the highest office? I don't know. You're, you're going to tell me how many does this qualify you? Well, we don't know yet. It's, we're testing it right now, aren't we? I mean, Trump is up to four at the moment, at the time of speaking, sure. indictments against him, including, including, you know, conspiracy to overthrow an election and retention of secret classified documents. That he well, I know people with. have got blind and died because of all this, but it is still at the same time really funny, isn't it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, like I say, you know, don't take my driver license off me until I've got the points. That's all I'll say. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you. It's easy these days. We've got CCTV, of... haven't we? You know. <laughs> you know, if I've been speeding, I have. I've, I've been on the course. Funnily then enough, there is CCTV it's... footage of boxes of classified documents in, well, there we in go, the country you know. club. Yeah. I mean, you know, if. <laughs> If that's the case, then then you're saying like, wouldn't it be nice to get him indicted and upheld before the next election? Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that perhaps a person who's got several federal indictments, yeah, is not the person you put forward, you know, to possibly be elected. Maybe wait until all of that blows over. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's as a as a marketing decision, it seems to have done the, the Republican Party no harm. <laughs> Whatsoever, <laughs> somewhat incredibly, what crazy days will it be? Party of law and order. There we go. Well, we've got some comments on about officialdom and early two thousands comments on about the nature of massaged media realities from mainstream media rather than purveyors of fake news, which is more the concern these days. Gangtu's brother and little girl's uncle arrives and is blaming her dad for losing her. And they have a bit of a set to, don't they? They have a bit of a fight. We learn that Hyung Soo's mum ran away after she gave birth. I guess that's the normal way around, isn't it? Couldn't really do it before. And then officials in biological hazard suits arrive, starting addressing the crowd with a tannoy. This is quite comic, isn't it? And they start fumigating all the refugees, don't they? Put your hands up if you've been near the monster. Don't worry about it. Just put your hands up, everybody. And then as soon as people put them up, put their hands up, you know, they're kind of rugby tackled and <laughs> led away. And uh, in particular, uh, they kind of know that Gangdu has had... He's had contact. blood in his face when he fought. He admits he had blood in his face, so he's kind of seal him up in a breathable coffin kind of thing and <laughs> sort of wheel him out of there. So, yeah, all quite black humour and quite funny. And we learnt that the guy who was fighting alongside him, this American soldier, has now lost an arm and apparently has caught a virus that they're trying to study. Gangdu gets a phone call round about now. I'm not sure when. Is it when he's in the hospital and in isolation? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. From uh, his daughter. From his daughter. So wherever she is, she's managed to get a signal. And uh, it's a very short phone call. But she says she's in the sewers, I think, or something like that. Is that right? She's got very low battery and she's obviously still alive. And we see a sort of flashback to her finding somebody else's phone. Because this creature has put her in a pit in a sewer area or something underneath one of the Han River bridges. And yeah, it's like a squirrel with its nuts. It's kind of keeping people to eat later, isn't it? That's right. Usually corpses, but she's alive, so she scurries away to a little hole at the end of the pit that maybe it can't get into. And it keeps bringing these corpses in, and she searches through the bodies pulls out a cell phone, and she phones her own phone, which is why I guess she knows the number, which she had handed to her father in disgust because it was a pretty shoddy mobile phone, especially for Korea in, in that era. Just an ordinary flip phone, wasn't it? Nothing special. Now, Grandad is furious up at this monster and says, I'm... It's a kind of like a comic take on, you know, heroic resolve. says, I'm, you know, I will not rest until I've taken out this monster. And he's a septuagenarian or oxygenarian old man kind of thing. But he's, he's managed to bribe various officials and gangsters to tool him up with all the things that he needs to go and capture a monster. So all they've got to do now is escape from hospital and then go to the lockup and pick up all the, all the things that he's paid for with bribes. They managed to escape from the hospital. As you say, this gang of criminals give them a, a great expense. van and a lot of suits and weapons as well. And a map so, of the sewer system for $500. And 
and they bribe the guard with all of the loose change that Gangdu had been saving for a new mobile phone for Young Se. He's slightly suspicious, but because the hy- hygiene car that they've hijacked is a recent addition to the Quango that's doing the doing the monster curtailment, I think they would have got through anyway, wouldn't they? And they make it into the sewers, and the sewers are huge. Like, Impressive, I guess, yeah. I guess modern cities do have big sewers like this, like Paris does. All I read up, but actually, it is it is actually filmed in the sewers of, of Seoul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, I read that as well. It's it's filmed on location. Yeah, amazing. And they have a map, but still, it's really big. And spooked in the dark, they discharge one of the shotguns, and they scare these two young kids who are sneaking through the sewer. Actually, was that one of the kids who was sneaking? It was the same, the same crew, yeah. We later find out why the older brother was stopping the younger brother from stealing from the shop. And that's because of post-Second World War, something called Siori. Okay. Siori, yeah, they mention that. They mention this it, which you can't really... Because they were raiding, actually, the family's... The family's uh, kiosk. Kiosk later, I think. Is it a few minutes later? Yeah, just shortly after this. Yeah. yeah, so you can raid for food, but you can't steal other things, kind of thing. Uh, it's a rule. During the starvation that happened after the Second World War, Siori was the right to pick fresh vegetables in the countryside, if you will. Melon Siori. Yes. Now, the director, I saw a thing saying that there was no word you could translate Siori to. But I thought mm. immediately of the word scrumping. Yes, scrumping. It seems to be the same thing, right? It's like a tolerated larceny theft you know kind of slightly light-hearted and certainly not a serious crime no no i mean in the, now we've got self-service tools uh, oh my god here we go supermarkets are getting really cool. serious this is a confessional no now we've got well we'll get to the i don't do but i know i know how you do it you know how you do it yeah i'll be really about it. okay supermarkets are getting really serious about cutting their it's called nat- natural leakage which is the idea is that, that the, the checkout one customers will hide things yeah. or the if it's cash then the checkout operator will pocket a bit of money maybe 10 pounds a day or Various members of the team will, you know, take a loaf of bread home, probably something small like a bar of chocolate. There's a natural leakage of up to 6%, isn't there, previously? Now we've got self-checkout tools. It allows to employ a bigger security team, and they're hoping to get leakage down to just 3%. Wow, I, I didn't know that. I was standing the other day in my local Tesco Express, you know, a modestly sized miniature Tesco that fits into a... A small high street shop, you know. And I was standing in an aisle looking at something, and up the aisle, this guy comes. In my kind of fanciful imagination, he's wearing a bucket hat, you know, as a scraggly kind of shaggy beard kind of thing. Has he got fingerless gloves? That kind of thing, yeah. Combat and pants. He was at the baby food section. Smells of patchouli oil. He took a big box of baby food, shoved it under his coat. Oh, under his hat. Under his coat, nice hat. Keep your money in your shoes, guys, if you're in a hostage situation. Okay. Something on. <laughs> well, he saw that I was there, and he saw that Did I he saw smile at you? Right. locked eyes, briefly. But Did you what tot? am I supposed to do? Tot. He's stealing baby food. I'm not even going to tut at him. He's stealing baby food. He's not, he's not doing that, you know, to fuel his drug habit, is he? He's going to feed a yeah, baby. It's, no, it's highly commodity. Well, it is a, a, a really resellable commodity, baby food. Unfortunately. Well, I dare say he was putting it under his coat. I don't think he was going to the self-service checkout. <laughs> I think he was going straight out. So the one trick that people are doing is pressing onions and weighing avocados. <laughs> which I just think is scandalous. <laughs> and if there's a camera on that, there's no escaping it, is there really? If that's before the magistrate, you know, you're going down, aren't you, basically? It's obviously intentional. Big savings, though. You can know, tell us an avocado thing. I mean, how much is onions? I last look, you know, cheap white onions are 80p a kilo. kilo. Avocado's like, what, eight pounds a kilo or something? I don't know. I don't think I've ever bought an avocado. I wouldn't know what to do with an avocado. I don't know. So scrumping exactly. avocados, that's the thing that people are doing in their home. Anyway, so, yeah, they're, I mean, they're a real tight pair of buddies, these two kids, aren't they? And... Pretty soon, they get attacked by the creature as they are raiding our family's store. Is that right, yeah? First, the family also make it back to their kiosk. 
They do, that's and right. They, they all cook ramen and slurp it noisily. And as they do that, Hyung So appears and starts eating with them. And were you, did you notice that? Were you confused by it? That's because she's imagining that, isn't she? In the sewer. I think they're imagining... Everybody's imagining it, yeah. Someone's imagining it. Again, the director said of this scene that he, he wanted one last scene of them all together. Oh. Spoiler alert, there is no opportunity to, to do this again. <laughs> no, no. It's mostly the dad's fault, as to be said. But here's another, another great break from the Hollywood straitjacket, because this film does not have a conventionally happy ending, does it? As we'll see. No. It's so not we laid on the trowel. No, definitely not. It's her imagination. Instead, she is crouched in the pit. She's catching raindrops to drink. So do the boys and the family cross paths at the kiosk or not? Not really. We see no. the monster, I think. As, no, I don't think so, because the monster now returns and drops those two lads off. The younger one is alive, but the older one is not responsive. They're, They've they're been grabbed from the kiosk, haven't they, essentially? Yeah, or that, those environs, yes. Yes, it's so the older man. boy, sadly, is gone and sensitively, Hyun So, the daughter, kind of misdirects the younger, younger, younger brother to look away while she sort of searches his body for booty and mobile phone, presumably, and that kind of stuff. And she yeah. keeps the younger kid safe by taking him to the hole that she's found at the end of the pit. She does, in a few minutes, hit upon an idea to escape. Gangdu has fallen asleep after their slap-up ramen meal in the kiosk, and his father is telling the other kids the story of his youth when he was doing siori on local vegetable plots. Yeah, it's lacking like a theme, protein. Right? He said, because he lacked protein in his formative years, now he sleeps all the time. And he said to the older, the older brother group graduate, "Don't be so critical of him." Give when him a break. You, give him a break. When you were saying you got the wrong hand and the wrong girl, that really hurts him. He's slow. And they said something at this point, on the subtitles anyway, he said something like a B- minus or an A-plus condition. Is he talking about blood groups? Or... Don't know about that. Although the Koreans are obsessed with blood groups, as the rest of East Asia is. I know, I know. But it could just be, I guess, do they use the same kind of marking as we used to? Don't B- think they do, no. Must be blood groups, then. Must be blood groups. Anyway, whilst this speech is going on, Gangju wakes up and he sees the creature watching the kiosk. That's so, when he turns up the kiosk, thank you. Okay. Yeah, they get the guns, they shoot at it. It's not dead, but they do shoot it and knock it down once, and they follow after it. And it monkey bars underneath the bridge and drops in the water. The monster's pretty well done, isn't it? Yes. It's great special effects. It is really good special effects. Like over a decade ago. Really good. And again, you know, no shying away from seeing it. This monster doesn't happen at dark, in the dark or, you know, in a dingy area or in a haunted house. This is in broad daylight. Well, overcast South Korean sort of daylight. But daylight nonetheless, right? The first sad, real sad moment here, which is almost hard to take, is the granddad, the, you know, the dad of the three, the three siblings, is killed, isn't he, at the, at the riverside? He gets knocked out by the creature, yeah. Because, again, awful comedy, because his son has miscounted the number of remaining bullets in the, in the shotgun that he passes, or the rifle that he passes to, his, to, his, to the granddad here. Yeah, that's right. And the creature uses its tail to flick him onto the concrete quayside and kills him. So just after the granddad has been essentially singing his sympathetic praise of his son, you're like, you know, be easy on him, you know, kind of thing. Then his son does this act of stupidity again and fails, you know, passes his father an empty weapon. But it was also, in a sense, it was an act of self-sacrifice, wasn't it? So that yes. he's trying to kind of lure the creature in a way as well, I think. It's quite a layered, it's quite it a layered kind of piece, and it's, isn't it? It's generally quite a sad moment, actually. Okay. Lay it, sort of mixed with this uncompromising humour. Gangdu, our protagonist, is captured, isn't he, by the army, I think. I don't know That's why. That's right, because, how. well, he was mourning his father's body, right. you know. The soldiers in their bio suits run up and catch him. But his older brother has escaped. And his sister. And his sister yeah. has escaped and gone separate ways, presumably. Uncle has escaped and he goes walking the streets at night and he sees a wanted poster with his dad and his, all his family on it, but he's looking wistfully at his dad's picture. His plan is to meet a contact. An ex-government protester also from student days. Apparently works for the cellular network and he's arranged to meet him by a laundry, a laundry 
a dry cleaners kind of thing. And it's clever because there's a rack of suits that have been dry cleaned outside. Oh. And his mate picks in fresh suit up because his is filthy from the sewers. And he gives it to him so he can put it on so that they can then get into the offices of the cellular network because they plan to track the call that young Sue made. That's right. She was in the and his friend says, that's a really easy thing. I just need the codes, just plug it in and we'll get the answer. And then for some reason, he's unable to do that somewhat, somewhat bizarrely and somewhat suspiciously. Well, it turns out that this friend is kind of double-crossed him because there's a big reward out on the heads of the family. So he's been speaking to the authorities about cashing in a reward. He's gone to the back room to talk to the government agents who are waiting, is that right? That's right. But clever guy, protester, uncle guy, what he does is he puts a paperclip around the terminals of a plug and he plugs it into a strip. Will this work? Great question, Paul. Glad you asked. Well, it was certainly short out. In a British system, you would expect that it might blow the fuse in the extension strip. Yeah. But having said that, circuit breakers are pretty damn quick, aren't they? So it might well trip the breaker for the ring main, as we would call it. Ah, it would do, wouldn't it? That short surge would trip everything. It wouldn't break. It wouldn't burn out any circuits, but it would cause the main circuit breaker to go, wouldn't it? Well, I think what it would do is it would trip the breaker for the plug sockets in the office. I don't think it would affect the lighting. So it wouldn't be plunged into darkness. Conveniently, though, it does work. That's what happens here. So he can escape in the dark, and he hops out of the office and puts something in the door handles, doesn't he, so they can't get it. Well, there's loads of cops there. There must be about 50 cops stuck in that room. How does he lock them in? He just goes out. A broom. Yeah, he puts something, doesn't he, in the... He brews the door handle. What's that? Did Somebody did it to me when they were protesting having paid money to our company a few years ago. And they locked... They locked you in. They locked us all in. It's about 300 people with the bicycle lock. Oh, that's difficult. But there must have been an emergency exit, Paul, in this 300... They didn't know that, but yeah, there was. There was just another way out. (laughs) He has escaped the cops. Namil also has the location on the computer system he took it. And he has to escape the cops, though, that are outside by jumping off the bridge of an overpass. He does that, gets away from the cops, but lands heavily, hurts himself, (laughs) crawls under the bridge and hides there. And And wakes up having been taken under the wing of a genuinely homer person who has a tent and he slept in his tent for the evening. He's also texted his sister on his phone. Now, Namjo has been hiding under a different bridge. She's, like, inside the metalwork of a sort of Gerda bridge, isn't she? That's it's really right, cool. Yeah. And she climbs out, and she goes back to the family kiosk and gets one of those disposable phone charges and charges her dead phone with it. And as she does that, she gets the message from her brother... Where? ...saying where Young say Seuss call is. Very neatly written, isn't it? Brilliant. Brilliantly written. She heads out into the sewers to find the hideout of that monster. And she finds the monster. She gets barged out of the way. Yeah, escapes. It runs at her. And it knocks her into this narrow pit that she can't get out of. One show bridge. Now, we, have, we cut, don't we, back to the military hospital where, where Gangdu, our protagonist, is being held under some level of security uh, and a nice little cameo with it from a bog-eyed I don't know if he's actually bog-eyed creepy American bog-eyed American scientist which is really quite funny where he's pointing out that there is no virus obviously as we know but he's pointing this out to the to the nurse or the doctor that the secret to discovering any virus lies in uh, Gangdu's brain Essentially, well, must, that's the last place he can be. Last place he can be. be. And anyway, we're going to lobotomize him, so let's just go in there and dig <laughs> out his brain anyway. So, very satirical, quite dark, and quite funny. Young Su is in the pit with this little kid that she's found, this urchin, street urchin. The street urchin has worked out that she is from the family that owns the kiosk where he ate stuff with his brother. Yeah. And he's like in awe, isn't he? Do you, you must get to eat ramen all the time, kind of thing. She comes up with a nice saying, which must be a Korean saying: is the, "The kids in the Chinese takeaway never eat dumplings." Eat dumplings. I, I love it's that. It's a nice. It's a nice phrase. Isn't it? It's kind of very shorthand for that, that that kind of thing. Whereas the guys on the fairground round never ride the roller coaster, do they? 
And this is where, as if she isn't already, Young Sue becomes a hero, doesn't she? She gets a load of clothes from the corpses. This is brilliant. Ties them together. I would uh, never have had this idea. She makes a rope out of the clothes with a truncheon or nightstick from one of the security guards that's down there. At the end of it, as an anchor, she uses a grapple. Ah, is that what you call it? Yep. An upward anchor. And she flings it up, and she flings it up onto the grating that's above this pit in the sewers. It's too short. Yeah, she can't reach it. But then she has another genius insight, which is like, you come on the back and you can get that kid. But as they're trying to do that, the monster returns to the top of the pit and it vomits a load of bones and a can of beer into the pit. And then it eats one of the bodies in the larder. Strange to like vomit into your own food store, isn't it? It is strange. Or well, maybe not. Maybe yeah. we've all done it. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, Gangdu has survived his cranial biopsy. <laughs> this is when he takes a medical professional hostage with a hypo of his own blood. He escapes out of the establishment he was in, which apparently was set on a waste ground where they were keeping this field hospital. He steals an ambulance, drives off in it. In the meantime, Namil, the brother, has met, has done a deal with the homeless guy who looked after him. <laughs> a deal, yeah. And he's making Molotov cocktails in the back of a taxi, taking them to the cordoned-off zone the uh, oh yeah because they plan to use agent orange to destroy all biological life uh, and that's right anomalies okay. in the in the area to kill the virus but actually to kill the creatures so again media lies etc 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 and there's protests a protest movement developing about the use of these chemical agents in the city so all these protesters are starting to form interestingly he portrays these students i think they're mostly student protesters as being both heroic and somewhat useless at the same time like there's several shots where they don't see the monster or they do or they go in the wrong direction so he's got something to say i think about protests generally hasn't he? the homeless guy namil is with has got all these bottles of presumably soju i think it is it, looks it like is soju, soju yes. yeah i wouldn't have thought that soju's percentage alcohol is quite high there's enough. two kinds though isn't there ah do tell me well the soju which is a sweet rice liquor Think. And there's Molotov cocktail proof. And then so there's the sorghum liquor. Spirit. Or kind of like a wheat or a maize or a barley liquor. I don't know what you call sorghum. Which is, you know, a grass, a dry grass ear, which is much more powerful. Okay. So you think it's plausible that you could set fire to it? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. All right, all right, fine, fine. It all ramps up here. So all these it's inter- interconnected twines are happening at the same time, aren't they? It's all very That's right. twined. So it's hard to describe really how he ramps up the speed, but he does quite effectively towards the end. The monster sleeping, Hyung Soo has this idea of kind of vaulting onto it so that she can reach the rope bit. And she tries to do that, but it catches her with his, its tail, doesn't it? Ah, that's it right. seems yeah. to be sleeping. So she's really stuck in there. They can't get out. Gangdu arrives at the pit at the location, but when he looks down, the pit is empty. There's nobody there. The monster is gone. The kids are gone. The crowds are protesting this Agent Orange release, and they've got all these... They've got those wacky, waving-arm inflatable guys, don't they, as part of the protest? That's right, yes. yeah, That's cute. As the, the crowds are all there, they start to flee because the creature emerges from the river. That's right, yeah. And they've got this, like, this machine thing on the end of a crane that is dispensing Agent Orange all over the quayside. They do a big dump of this stuff apparently incapacitating the monster, at least briefly. That's when Gangdu faces off against it and his two siblings have arrived, along with the homeless man, and they set it on fire. Is that right? First, he runs over to the incapacitated monster and he reaches into its mouth. Oh, it pulls out his pulls out, pulls out his daughter, who's holding on to the little kid. She was hanging on to its tooth so she didn't get swallowed fully. And he's trying to revive, uh, he's trying to revive his daughter, obviously, but... She's to not no avail. Yeah. yeah, as you say, the uncle and the aunt arrive, so she's trying to fire a bow and arrow at it. Well, the there's a comic is... moment where the uncle, the protester, you know, <laughs> has professionally prepared all these Molokov cocktails and damp squibs it at the last moment. She arrives with a bow and arrow, picks up the last of the flame and fires it into the monster. And finally, she gets the goal kind of thing. Immolating the monster, yeah. On fire, the creature turns around and runs back to the river. But Gangdu is sort of waiting for it. He heads it off with a, another signpost or a pole, <laughs> and he spears it through the mouth, doesn't he, as it runs 
So it's all action, but I, I don't think we've managed to portray just how sensitively the daughter's death, the granddaughter's death, depending on what we're referring to here, or what she called Hyunsu. How intimate her death is here, you know, it's, it's within this action and within this quite dark humour. It really is quite, quite a moving moment, isn't it? And Gangju then finds the boy, who was obviously by Young Su's side and who she saved. He's still alive, he's revivable, so mm. he comes around. And then we fade. A period later, we, it's, it's snowy outside, in fact, different season. We're back in the kiosk. And now the little lad is there sleeping blissfully in the kiosk. Adopted, sort yeah, of presumably. dream location. Yeah. Gangju is sitting there pensively, now with his hair to his presumably natural dark colour. And he's got a shotgun by his side, hasn't he, as he looks out in the kiosk. Wow. That is the end of the movie. That's sweet. Sweet but sad, and not very Hollywood. Blissfully so. Definitely not Hollywood, no. No, definitely not. Okay. Can I just say me like it? It was good. Oh, yeah, it's very good. Not a lot to criticise, really, at all. It's just so well written, as you mentioned, as you mentioned. Mm. Very tiny scripted, you know. Small details mean something. Just the, the way the, the comedy and tragedy of Eris becomes so believable, the mistakes that they make and how everything is always turned on a sixpence. It's just brilliantly done. The kind of over-interfering, shaming and criticism of lump and proletariat family, very well portrayed, I think. That kind of lack of space and privacy and distance that people don't have in that kind of situation. Where you're sleeping top and tail with various generations on a floor kind of thing. All that was very intimate portrayed. I don't know about his background. I presume he grew up poor kind of thing. And again, the genre mixing and the incredible black humour that doesn't really detract from the incredible pathos of various parts of the movie. It's just so accomplished. I don't know how he does it, really. Let's talk about acting then, Paul. I just thought I should finish my review there. The acting's really spot on. Sometimes, like, young Asian actors can come across culturally. The Babelfish doesn't come across right. They can come across as cloying and overly sweet. But I didn't get this from the young cast members at all. All really kind of believable. I agree with you. All really good. All these actors have done cool things in a lot of the works that we've seen. I'm going to give it an eight. Yeah, so the young cast member's brilliant. Uh, I thought Gang Du, the, the dad of the daughter that passed away, absolutely brilliant. Yes. yes Just very true. convincing as kind of like Asian layabout. It's a very stereotypical kind of guy. Just kind of rings true. I can see why his hair was dyed blonde. Because, like... What the... What the hell? <laughs> well, no, like, in... Until about 10 years ago, if somebody had a tattoo in Asia, or had either blonde or sort of burgundy highlights in their hair... They were a gangster. They were a gangster. Or, you know, or they were a... A, 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 ned, a ned-do-well. They were a roadman, as you would say these days. Kind of roadie or kind of... Not a roadie. A roadie are the people who work for bands and movies. Oh, a roadman, yes. Yeah. A roadman, yeah. But over the age of 18. So, yeah, the acting I'm going to give, 8.5. We have to talk about plot. Loved it. Here, multi-layered, subtle, interesting. Yeah, it's got to be an 8, if not a 9. For me, I've got to give it higher because it just pulls off that genre mixing in a way that doesn't make you think, ew, or... Whoa, kind of, it doesn't really jolt, does it? Everything makes sense. I guess when the Greeks did their tragedies, it was all full on too, wasn't it? Maybe something about the Korean personality. To be fair, look, they're slightly confusing about attitudes to class structures and to the American influence. I'm not quite sure what's being said, but I know what's being said is subtler than most films. I, I, I don't know what is being said, but that's good, isn't it, I think, for a movie? I think so. Yeah, you read what you want into it, don't you? It, something certainly is being said about the monster either represents American cultural imperialism or... or environmental it, disaster. Or, or environmental disaster. or I mean, it, it, it's a, it could be a token of anything, could it? couldn't it? it? It could be the monster of social climbing, even. The daughter wanted to be this gold medalist and all this kind of stuff, the aspirationalism. It could be anything, couldn't it? And that's why I think... As a metaphor, it works very well, as a tokenistic metaphor. But what, for me, is more about the details of the plot and really works exceptionally well to make the bumbling anti-hero believable. So for me, it's a 9.5 for plot. Really, very well crafted, I thought. Special effects and horroriness. Don't have a very small budget, Richard, this. Very small brilliant. Budget. Less than 10 million US dollars. The monster is half fish, half squid, half demogorgon before, 10 years before Stranger Things. 
a, mm. a really effective monster, I thought. You're right. Yeah. yeah. A good point to bring up Stranger Things. Yeah, that it feels like of a piece in a sense, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm not going to say much about special effects. I will say it definitely scored an eight for me. Would perhaps you want to say more about special effects? And just Look, it's, it's over 10 years ago, and there are some moments that you don't buy it. But mostly, again, considering it's all done in the daylight, the lighting looks amazingly good on it mm. in lots of different conditions. That's a fair point, yeah. It seems well stitched into the whole piece. There's something slightly unnatural about its movements sometimes, but, you know, it's an alien creature, isn't it, of some kind, so free pass. And they do not shy away from showing it, and you don't mind. Like, you don't have to look away, you don't have to squint and go, that doesn't quite sell. The you autumnal know, atmosphere is solid, beautifully done, though, the mist. and True. Yeah, the yeah. greyness. It's, it's, it's a romantic greyness of the river scenes of soul. Brilliantly done. And brilliantly evoked. Sorry. I'll give it an eight again. Another and eight. the sewers, the grandiose sewers, too. It feeds into his social metaphor. Don't know what he's saying. I, I think he's made it to be freeform and haiku. But it, all that all that concrete brutalism really builds into it, doesn't it? You got any other cats? No, cats not really. I, I, well, how about genre-breaking tragedy and comedy at the same time? Tragedy and <laughs> comedy. But I think horror does this all the time. Yeah, okay. How about Hollywood convention-breaking? I've got a score oh, yeah. This, I think. Yeah, sure. Just more generally. Yeah, it, it breaks Hollywood convention at every turn. And it's gets away with more than that. It succeeds, yeah. doesn't it? You know? yeah. I mean, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Definitely a nine from me. Yeah, a nine from me. For an overall score, Oof. well, it's, it's an eight. I mean, it is like a monster movie. It's a bit horror-y, and it's kind of sad because the girl dies. There's stuff not to love about it, but I think you will enjoy it, generally speaking, because it's very well done. I'm going to go nine. I really found the grandfather and the, and the daughter's death, the granddaughter's death, really moving. Within a horror movie, I don't know how they do that, but they did. I'm just knocked out by that. So for me, almost top marks, nine out of ten. Definite recommend. Paul, you know all these schools are crumbling around the country? Yeah, it's to do with the uh, tofu dreg, isn't it? Is it the case that I've read that it's all the schools that you visited? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, my laser eyes... My highly perceptive and critical critical perspectives on pedagogy have sent the, the concreteness of their ideas crumbling, Richard. Is that what you're saying? Because, you know, the government's latest plan is not to actually pay anything to rebuild the schools at all. That's what they're currently saying. It's, it's a bold move, isn't it? I think the idea is you just... Someone else will probably do it if they leave it long enough, won't they? It'll be reaped. So there well, we are. That's the state of the world. But what movies have I got to choose from for next week? I'm going to throw five at you and see how you feel about that. What the... F okay. Joyland. Never heard of it. It's on your list, though, Richard. Oh, Broker. Right. More Korean, if you want it. Broker? I thought it was called Stoker. Okay. If you don't like that Korean offering, there's another Korean offering, which you might like even more. Psychokinesis. Oh, we had a debate about whether it was psychokinesis or telekinesis, didn't we? We did. The internet had a debate. I think I was never persuaded by any of the arguments out there, but we can revisit that. Please All my don't. friends hate me. That's a statement of fact and also the name and of the also movie. also a film. <laughs> uh, finally, uh, say with me, Idiocracy. Okay. Idiocracy, so, surely you've seen that. I have, but I'd kind of like to revisit it because people said, oh, it's a really naff movie. But maybe... But it's very appropriate now? But, no, reason? maybe less appropriate now because we kind of believe in averagely sensible government now, don't we, after Donald Trump? We're not so critical of mainstream government anymore, are we? And I don't know if idiocracy is about extreme governments or about mainstream to the point of banality. So I wanted to revisit to see what it's actually about because I can't remember. Tempting, although it is not, to see idiocracy. No, maybe it is. Of the ones that you just went through, the one I can remember the name clearly of is All My Friends Hate Me. Huh. So I think we go for that. Okay. Sorry to disappoint you. I am dis I was hoping we were going to go on a Korean tip and stay with the How You Wave or whatever it's called, but we don't. Off we go to All My Friends Hate Me. And it is an interesting well, one, but I can't remember what it's about. Exactly. You can persuade me, but. No! Uh, no, I kind of want to see it, but I can't quite remember what it's about. Genuine, but increasingly insecure P is cautiously excited about reuniting with his college curious it's like, it's like a big chill all over again but not in 1984 for a birthday weekend okay of memories so it's a bit like St. Elmo's Fire but they've already departed college okay 
Best laid plans, dear audience. Okay, sounds good then. And we can see it on Amazon, so that's all good. Yay! So, thank you for listening this week, and until the next time. Join us next time for Series 4, Episode 6 on Tri-Fi Cinema. Ciao, and I'll see you on the next one. Goodbye.